I want to start tonight with a statement that appears in the writings of the Arizal. It's a Kabbalistic statement. And it's very relevant to the theme we're going to develop tonight. The Arizal writes, Haneshama atzma, tikun klal. The neshama itself, the soul itself, requires no correction. It's perfect. It doesn't need anything from its job in this world. So why does the soul come down to the world? So there's an end to the statement. But there's two versions in the Arizal's text. One version said, the neshama needs no perfection. Ela aliyah. Rather, it needs an ascent. Perfection is perfection, but you can never be perfect. Too, too perfect. Like the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe of Chabad used to say, if good is good, isn't better better? So nothing inherently is lacking in the neshama. But through its mission in the world, it can get even higher, even godlier, even more connected to the divine. That's one version. Here's the other version. The other version says the neshama has no correction, it's perfect. Why does it come down to the world? To contribute to the world. To infuse the world with godliness. So notice, one statement focused on the neshama. It gets an ascent. The other statement focused on the world. The neshama is here to add to the world. And the reason why I started with this is because the theme we've been developing the last two chapters, chapter 35 and 36, when we basically took a turn in the Tanya, is that in a way, there's two Judaisms. Simultaneously functioning, there's two Judaisms. There's our Judaism and there's God's Judaism. What do I mean by that? I mean, what's the, what's the goal? What are we looking for with our experience as Jewish people? If you ask the human being, his journey is a journey in self-refinement, self-elevation. You know, there's a midrash that's quoted by every boy that turns 13 in Chabad. There's a special discourse, they say, the Bar Mitzvah Maimah. And right at the top, the heading of the, of the discourse is a midrash which says, the Jews turned to God and said, Rotsim anuli gaba Torah yomam balayla. We would rather be able to toil in Torah day and night. If you ask the Jew by default what he'd like to be doing in this world, it's to be as spiritual as possible. As sublime, as transcendent, as godly as possible. That's our Judaism, essentially. And that's essentially the first half of the Tanya, page chapters 1 to 34, was the recipe to create a discipline that will allow you to serve God in the most godly way. It gets you in touch with your godly soul, with your godly dispositions, with your godly capabilities, and you become a more godly man. God's Judaism is the opposite. God wants, as much as we want to go up, God wants to come down. And the Kabbalistic concept we employed yesterday, last week, was dira betachtonim. God wants a dwelling place in the lowest realms. A dwelling place means a home. A home is where you're free to express yourself without inhibition. As the world stands now, it's in a state of concealment from God. God is not a parent. In fact, as we learned last week, and it was a bit of a deep conversation, God left no trail in this world. Zero evidence outside human analysis. 
That's tachtonim. It's the lowest of the low. And God wants to be at home there. And so where if you ask the Jew, the Jew's Judaism is to get away from the world. God wants us to be as much as we can in the world. Bring him to lower and lower and lower places. And obviously, if that's the perspective, action becomes paramount. The Mishnah teaches, Action is the main thing. Why is action paramount? More than Torah study, more than meditation, more than spiritual feelings. Action is where it's at because action is the part that occupies the lower parts of ourselves. Doing physical things means we're bringing God into a physical place. And that's exactly what he wants. Last week we even talked about how not just action, but struggle specifically. Because struggle is even lower when you have to come up against the negative and you're trying to convert it into a positive. That's an even lower level of takhtonim. And so bringing God there makes, him even, makes his vision for a home even more fulfilled. It's almost like God is saying, the lower the place, the more ideal the home. Bring me into your mind, fantastic. Bring me into your heart, fantastic. Bring me into your hands. Bring me into your dinner. Now that's even more fantastic. That's not in the Tanya, but Hasidus gives the analogy. When you want to lift up a building, you have to lift it up from the bottom. If a person would try to stick a tool into the middle of a home and lift it, he'd just end up with the top half. But if you want to really lift up everything, you got to go from the bottom. So if you want to lift up the world, you got to go from the bottom. This is the theme that we've been developing. Our Judaism, very important. But now we're shifting focus and we're focusing on what Hashem wants from Judaism. By the way, as an aside, and it does come up in chapter 37 a little bit, and I think I talked about it also two weeks ago in chapter 35, is why Judaism is fixated on ritual. Ritual centricity is like everything has a way to do it. Everything has an action. You can't even go to the bathroom without having laws in the, in the, in the code of Jewish law, how to do it, which hand to wipe with, what to do, how to sit. You know, this is, I'm not joking. This is, this is a whole, there's sections in Shulchan Aruch about this. How to walk, how to do business, how to get dressed, which sleeve to put in first, how to shower. And of course, how to do Jewish, Jewish mitzvahs. How to shake a lulav. It's a right side and a left side and you shake it up and down and it's got to be this way. Everything, we're so caught up in the details of the ritual. And the reason for that is not just because we're OCD or crazy and you know, obsessive compulsive about, about orthodoxy, but it's because more than the symbolism that every mitzvah carries, more than the meaning that's conveyed, there's something valuable essentially about the act. Just the fact that we're doing something physical is where it's at. Because it's the physical act that brings Hashem into the physical. It's counterintuitive to the way many contemporary people view Judaism. Many people, when when they want to rope you in, they try to teach you the symbolism of mitzvahs. Keep Shabbos, why? Because it'll connect you with your family. You'll find that you'll be able to disconnect from the world and focus. Put on tefillin because it has a very deep meaning of connections, meditation. All true, all true but there's something fundamentally missing 
if you don't focus on the action. Keep Shabbos because that's the way you bring Hashem into the physical world. Wrap a cow hide, you know, sheep wool, because that's bringing Hashem, carrying Him in, making Him a vehicle into, into the physical. Just a fascinating talk from the Rebbe. I want to share that because it came to me. The Rebbe once asked, if mitzvahs are all physical, what do we do with the mitzvahs that are uh, meditative? You know, there's a mitzvah to know God, to, to love God, to fear Him, called chovot halavavot, duties of the heart. How do we resolve that, you know, with the fact that every mitzvah has to be action-oriented? And the Rebbe said something fascinating. Modern science today knows that every information that's processed into your head creates creases in your brain. Physical creases. This is neuroscience. Somebody might know this if you know what I'm talking about. It literally makes indents in your brain. So knowing God has a physical effect on your brain. When you feel love for somebody or fear, we hear the expression in English, your heart's racing. Your heart beats, the physical heart beats. The Rebbe said, those physical expressions are the action parts of these mitzvahs. And so Hashem orchestrated it in a way that every mitzvah has an action part because the purpose of mitzvahs is to bring Hashem into tachtonim, dirabe tachtonim, a home in the lower realms. So this is the overarching theme. Chapter 37, like I said, the longest chapter in the Tanya, expands on this point. Action trumps everything. And essentially what the Alter Rebbe says is that we have to be attentive to the fact that when we do physical acts, we're not just bringing God into ourselves. Based on the last two chapters, it's very easy to think that Dira B'Tachtonim is a personal experience. Every person constitutes a low realm. Every person being a human being with struggles becomes his own little world. And each time he does something physical or she, they've made this little space into a a home. The thrust of chapter 37's thesis, and it goes for pages, and I'm going to repackage it tonight. If you'll go back and read the Tanya, you might see a bit of a different order, but for the purpose of organization, I'm going to present it in this way. The thrust of what the Alter Rebbe wants us to appreciate is that we have an effect in a much more profound way than we might initially realize. And here's how it goes. We were given mitzvahs. Hashem gave us 613 physical commandments. Each one has a physical component. Every physical act, by definition, requires other physical things to be involved. So, whether it's a preparation act, you have a sukkah. The mitzvah is to sit in the sukkah. But to sit in the sukkah, you have to build one. The mitzvah is to shake a lulav. But to shake a lulav, you have to buy one and you have to put it together. The mitzvah is to put on tefillin, but you've got to slaughter a cow, skin it, work the huts. The mitzvah is to have a mezuzah, but you have to have somebody write it. These are preparatory acts. They're called in Talmudic 
concepts, hechsher mitzvah, preparations. You have to make a circumcision, but you have to have a knife. All these things. Sometimes it's not so much the preparation, but it's the other parts of our physical life that get involved. Let's say uh, we have to buy something. So, the money. Let's say, if you wanted to split a little hairs, as they call it, when you shake the lulav, there's the shaking, but then there's the energy you put into the shake. Two separate elements. The act of the mitzvah and the energy that went into it. And so on and so forth. We can expand it in every single mitzvah. You can figure out the different components that go into achieving the end result, which is the physical action. So, essentially, since the core of mitzvahs is creating more and more paths through which Hashem comes into the physical world, by extension, everything involved in getting you to that result also becomes a home for God. So you have an effect on a much larger field of energy than you might think. And he goes even further with the money thing. It costed you something to get to, you know, to, to buy the mitzvah, right? But how did you get the money? Well, you have to go to work. Trace that back. You have to wake up in the morning. You have to go to sleep on time. You have to eat supper nicely. The, everything which contributes, the field extends. And your effect extends. And it's a revolutionary idea because what it means is every single element of your life can become part of the service of God. So long as we limit our perspective on Dira B'Tachtonim and we say, oh, it's only when you wrap the tefillin that you're bringing God into the world. Well, then it's very limited, your effect. But if you widen the horizon and you go, yeah, but how did I get here? There was a whole process. Everything which brought me to the mitzvah can also be counted in. Meditate. Premeditated. Premeditated. Mm-hmm. And, and different things have to go into it. Do the daily prayers also bring God down to that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Prayer, it's constant. Even the, act, even the act of prayer is an action of moving your lips. Stock is a brilliant one because it uh, rolls forever. Yep, yep. In fact, the Alter Rebbe makes the observation in this chapter that uh, in the whole Jerusalem Talmud, you know, there's, there's the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. In the, in the entirety of the Jerusalem Talmud, whenever the Talmud uses the expression mitzvah, the mitzvah, or a mitzvah, without defining which mitzvah it's referring to, it's referring to tzedakah. Because tzedakah is the most far-reaching dira betachtonim. Because to get money, most of our lives gets involved in that. You can say far-reaching backwards and forwards. True. True. Far-reaching backwards for what you got there and forwards for what it's going to bring about. You know, there was a, a, a great uh, Chabad supporter and a great wealthy man too, David Chase. And in 1983, he was on his journey closer to Yiddishkeit with Rabbi Herson in, in New Jersey. And he was learning about prayer, davening every day. 
not just in the morning, but three times a day. And he was learning that uh, you pray, first of all, wherever you are. It's not only when you have a synagogue, even if you're stuck without a synagogue, you have to, you have to daven. And that there's a special thing to face east when you daven. Face Jerusalem. And uh, anyway, one day he was on a vacation on a yacht. And it's coming sunset. He approached the captain and he says, uh, Sir, which way is east? Guy goes, East is that way, but why do you care? Non Jew, the captain. You're the owner of the yacht, you're having a party, you go enjoy yourself. What do you care which way? I, I should care which way is east. I know where to steer the boat, but why do you care which way is east? And he started to explain to him. Uh, you know, I, I'm getting more religious and I pray and every day we have to pray towards Jerusalem. The guy was so impressed. He said, if a rich man who lacks for nothing on a yacht, on a vacation is conscious enough to remember about praying to God and not just praying to God, but he prays with exactitude. He wants to know which direction. He says, maybe I could pray too. Maybe I can connect to God in some way. And he did. The Rebbe told this story publicly on his birthday, Fabring, in 1983. You could hear it on a video. The Rebbe says in Yiddish, "Amaisa mitayacht." It's a story. Doesn't say the man's name, but we know we know who it is. The yacht. And he describes it. And uh, and he made a whole thing. The Rebbe made a whole thing about it. You know, a little, a little mice, a little story, a guy getting closer to, to, to Yiddishkeit. But the Rebbe made a huge deal exactly about this point. He said, people talk about, what does it mean that everything in our lives can be transformed in the service of God? The Rebbe said, here, David Chase, and the yacht, and the captain, and the ocean, and by extension, the whole vacation became infused with godliness. Why? Because one Jew did a mitzvah on the yacht. The whole vacation became a, became a mitzvah. It's a good vacation. <laughs> it's a good vacation. It's better than a timeshare. <laughs> so, so seen this way, what, what, what the author is trying to tell us is dira betachtonim is a much, much broader concept. It's not just bringing God into the lower parts of yourself. That's, that's where it starts but it's bringing God into the lower parts of yourself and by extension, the world around you. you know, in Kabbalah, we call this olam. every person has a piece of the world that he needs to elevate. That's the piece of the world that we refer to, the grid around you that functions around your life and all the things that spin around it, infusing those things with godliness in a way that they can become now a home for Hashem. Something fascinating I came across last week with Simchas Torah. And uh, I was looking through one of the Fabringans of the Rebbe on Simchas Torah. 1954. First couple of years. And the Rebbe said, people often ask, what's the difference between Judaism and other man-made religions? Is there a way we can, you know, we can nail it? Is there, is there a part where we can just say, you know, this is what it is that sets apart Yiddishkeit from everything else? 
Of course, there are many answers, and each context requires its own discussion. But the Rebbe said this at that point, that for bringing, he said, what separates Judaism from every other religion is that Judaism is the only religion which governs every single part of life. There is no other religion that tells you how to go to the bathroom. There is no. There's no other religion that tells you how to get dressed. There's no other religion which tells you how to do anything outside the realm of what it calls to be its purpose. It might tell you to do certain deeds, to honor whatever spiritual deity it's serving. It might tell you to observe certain holidays. But the level to which Torah affects every part of life is the demonstration of the godliness of it. Because it came from an infinite God, it covers the infinite realm of all of your life. So this is the first proposition that the Alter Rebbe makes in this great chapter. Dira Betachtonim has a much wider context. But then the plot thickens. And first we have to talk about a little Kabbalah. Everybody loves Kabbalah. Here's a little Kabbalah. It says in the Zohar that Adam and Eve were created to be the perfect humans. Had they not sinned, the world would have remained in a perfect, completely unified state, divine, no evil, no flaws, no imperfection. Everything would have been exactly godly. But after they gave into the temptation of the Etzadas, the tree of knowledge, two things happened. Evil was introduced to the world, which now means the world needs correction, the world needs repair. This is where the social term tikkun olam, this is where it originates from. The world needed repairs because the, the original, the first sin brought imperfection into the world. Simultaneously, together with evil being introduced to the world, death was introduced to the world. And what death means, says the Zohar, is now it's impossible for one person to achieve all the repair. Right? Adam and Chava brought the world to a state of imperfection. Now they have to correct it. But because they're going to die, they're not going to be able to finish all the correction that's necessary. So what happened in the moment of the sin of the tree of knowledge? It says the Zohar, Adam HaRishon's soul was split into 600,000 souls. And now Hashem said, the children which you're going to produce and ultimately will become the Jewish people will be entrusted with the job of repairing the world. And it's going to happen through 600,000 Jews because according to the Zohar, the number 600,000 is kind of the, the overarching number of the Jewish people. That's why when they left Egypt, that was their number. How are these 600,000 souls going to go about repairing the world? So the Zohar tells us, each soul was told, here's what you have to do. You have to learn the entire Torah on all of its levels. You know, Torah has multiple levels. Pshat, the simple level. Remez is the allegorical. Jewish, the homiletical. And then the esoteric. Sot. So every soul has to learn the entirety of the Torah on all four levels. Plus fulfill 
every one of the 613 mitzvahs. And that'll be the way to repair the world. If every branch of the 600,000 will learn the entire Torah and do every mitzvah, this will be the way we'll repair the sin. So what happened? The first set of souls shortly discovered that it's not going to be a job for one person. Not everybody can learn the entire Torah on all levels. Not everybody can do every mitzvah, even, even halachically. Certain mitzvahs only apply to a Kohen, only apply to a king, only apply to the Sanhedrin. You can't do everything. So what happened? Every soul did as much as it could. Every soul learned whatever Torah it could. Every soul did whatever mitzvahs it could do. And then, says the Zohar, the 600,000 souls mutated and split. Each one into 600,000. So think about that. 600,000 to the power of 600,000. I don't even know what the number is. 360 billion or something. Yeah, 300, I think it's 360 billion. Anyway, some crazy, huge number. And now, gradually, what happens is, and this is also ties into the concept of Gilgulim, reincarnation, I don't want to get into it now, but this is the idea. Whatever one soul left unfinished, its byproduct now has to finish. And of course, the next generation did a little more. And the next generation did a little more. And so on and so forth with each part of each soul continuing the job of its original soul within the 600,000. This is the Zohar. This is the Kabbalah. What do we, what do we get from this? In a way, our lives as Jews are not just our story or our life. We have to see our existence against the backdrop of history. See, we have to see our journey through Judaism as the culmination of a mission of 5,782 years. The part that you're contributing when you do your mitzvah, your Torah, is very well the part that your soul was missing to complete the repair that was put into, put into place by the Chet Tzadas. You know, the Rebbe would always say, people talk about how generations get lower and lower. Yiridat hadorot. I would say, my grandfather was a great tzaddik. He learned the whole Torah. And look at us. We're just nothing. Rabbi, you don't mean that the soul needs to repair. I mean the soul needs to be... The soul needs to continue the work that it's doing to repair the world. Through an aliyah, right? Well, through, through doing what it was charged to do. It was charged to learn the whole Torah, do all the mitzvahs. If it only achieved some of them, now it's child. But the mitzvah isn't repairing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's repairing the world. Yeah, not the soul. Yeah, yeah. Like we started today. So the Rebbe would say that people talk about, you know, generations getting lower and lower. It's true, the Rebbe said. It's true. Our souls are much smaller. See, in the earlier generations, they were achieving much more, rip, uh, um, taking care of bigger puzzle pieces. And now, 
less and less things are left to accomplish. So our souls are smaller. At the same time, he would use the Talmudic metaphor, which says, Nanasa gabe anak, a midget on top of the giant's shoulders. We're a midget, but we're on top of the giant's shoulders because we're building on everything our parents and ancestors did. And that's why he would always talk about never pass up an opportunity to do a mitzvah. Never pass up an opportunity because this could be the one that's needed for you to complete and that completes the world's entire picture. In the olden times, generations ago, you can say, listen, there's so much left to do. I know what I have to do. This is my purpose. This is my thing. I, someone came into my life. I have to do this. I'll, I'll leave it for somebody else. Today, every mitzvah which you encounter, you could never pass up because this could be the one which your soul came down to the world for and that's going to complete the, you know, the job of your of your soul. But what, 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 what I'm basically saying, what the Alter Rebbe develops here in the chapter, is that not only do we have to see Dira B'Tachton in building God's home as wider than ourselves, but also, I guess, higher than ourselves in a way. See, we are, the, are, are a puzzle piece in the ultimate puzzle of life, the puzzle of history, started by Adam and Eve. And we're putting in the final touches. So when we do the mitzvah, A, we're bringing God into ourselves, lowest realms. B, all the energy that's flowing into it is also getting elevated. C, my fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers' work is coming to completion. So it's like a macro quantum effect when we do these mitzvahs. Because it's affecting such a large scale so much is going into this little act. And of course, when we do that, when we finish the puzzle, we build the, the dira, we build the home, that's Mashiach. In other words, it's, it's, it's automatic. Or if I can quote the opening line of chapter 37, the first line, the Alter Rebbe says, Everything that we're looking forward to in Mashiach's times depends on our deeds now in exile. Why do we say that? Because what we're doing is creating the puzzle. It's like a cause and effect, natural consequence. It's not like we're doing stuff and then boom, is going to be a big bang explosion and Mashiach's going to come. We're creating Mashiach. Mashiach represents the time when the home is complete. Each soul does its part. Each soul finishes the job of its predecessor souls. We bring the whole thing to fruition. And now we have a home in this world. And now we have Mashiach. So, so does this, these small puzzle pieces that we're dealing with now, does that mean that we're less connected? No. The question was, does it mean if we have smaller puzzle pieces, does it mean we're less connected? No, it means we're connecting all the big puzzle pieces together. We're the small missing dots. And have you ever made a puzzle when you were kids or maybe now even when you're older? Sometimes, you know, like when that little piece in the middle is missing, the whole thing is, is, is missing. It's not complete. It's like it's glaring at you. Or like they, they talk about the... Uh, that would play into the whole idea of this, as, as time goes on, um, the smaller the pieces, that's where Hashem finds the most precious because it's like furthest away from... That could be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't say that clearly in the Tanya, but the, uh, Philip is making a suggestion that perhaps it goes into the same theory 
that the lower something is, the more God is at home there. The smaller pieces, God is more at home there. Now, Rabbi, what's the interpretation of, uh, for example, when other generations undo something that the previous generation oh, made? Very good question. Very good question. This is not in the Tanya, but I, I'm, I'm going to address it because it's important. Sorry, what was the question? The question was, can a, can a later generation undo the effect of a previous generation? In a pro or a, or a con? In a negative way, he's talking okay. about. Talking about a negative way. Let me answer this. Let me answer this by giving you the next piece that I wanted to talk about. It's a short piece. It's, just, it's a caveat that the Altarebbe makes in the chapter. And I think it's going to help answer this question. The Alter Rebbe says, although we talked so much about uh, the lowest, the lowest, bringing God into lower, even the Torah has limitations. Certain foods we can't eat. Non-kosher. Certain actions we can't do. Forbidden by the Torah. Doesn't that tell us that it's an even lower thing? Maybe we should bring God even there. You know, how come there's these, uh, these lines? So in the Tanya, the Altar just says the fact. He says, Dira betachtonim is only in the optional area of your life. There's things you have to do, then there's things you can't do, then there's things that's up to your discretion. That's where you could bring God into your life. You can't bring God into the non-kosher pork. It's not going to work. You make a brach on it, you learn Torah afterwards, it doesn't matter. You can't. You can't do it. You eat chametz on Passover, it doesn't work. He doesn't give so much clarity why, but I heard an explanation that I want to share with you, and I think it's very, very apropos. And it does tie in to something we learned way back in chapter 8. And it's a very deep idea. What's the difference between something kosher and something not kosher? Or something permitted and something forbidden? So in Hasidus, we, we've studied this back in chapter 7 and 8, that it depends on the type of negative force that it's connected to. One is called klipat noga, the finer klipa, the finer shell. And one is called the shalosh klipot hatmeot, the, the three forbidden, uh, uh, impure klipot, the thick husks. That's the Kabbalistic difference. If it's a finer shell, so you can pull it out and make it good. If it's a negative, it's a, if it's a thick husk, you can't make it good. What does that mean? Finer husk, negative husk. So he says, this is one of my, one of my Tanya teachers, not in the Tanya Klippis. I, I, I heard this explanation. He says, the difference between finer klipa and thicker klipa is basically neutral energy or negative energy. Neutral energy means it's waiting for you to use it. Negative energy means it's negative. Negative energy is meant to die, not to exist. Negative energy needs to cease to exist. To engage with it gives it existence. Which wolf will you feed? To feed it. It's feeding it. How do you kill something negative? How do you kill a negative energy? You don't feed it. If you starve it, it dies. What, what feeds negative energy? A, engaging in it. B, 
in this case, using neutral things for negative as well. We learned this also way back. If you eat meat, kosher meat, but you do it for the wrong intentions, you schlep it down to the three klipot hatmeot, and they take care of it. They, they, they have a feast on it. Now they have energy. So non-kosher things, Hashem put them there, or they came into the world with, you know, maybe Adam's sin, and they're meant to die. They're meant... They're meant to disintegrate, yeah, to die. And therefore, they're not part of the recipe of creating a dira b'tachtonim. Hashem says, ignore them. These, these things, you're going to kill by starvation. Now, why am I saying that this answers uh, Marcelo's question about uh, pr- future generations? Because the underlying theme, when you, when you dig into this, what we're basically saying is that only good energy is forever. Since negative energy has to die, by definition, what that means is that it's not forever. And I think we even touched on this in chapter 24 and 25 when we were talking about the three effects of the mitzvah and the three effects of the avera, immediate, continuous, and eternal. And we mentioned how there's no eternal effect of an avera. The negative energy always dies in the end. So even if in the moment you've committed a rebellious act against Hashem, in the broader picture, it never achieves eternity. Versus your mitzvah, there's a place in heaven right now where the tefillin you put on this morning is still being wrapped. But as he said last before, word. if you do an avera, you transmute that avera. Uh-huh. You've actually taken God's presence from the lowest place and made it even more holy. So the avera, while it's an avera, if you transmute it, if you... Like do tshuva? Chuva, oh, okay. That's that's, that's true. Correct. That's true. You've actually raised it. You've done something great. That, no, that, 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 that's, that's true. No chuva is chuva chuva true. Plan. You can't plan the chuva. Right. Yep. That's why, why a, a Balchuva, the greatest tzaddik, doesn't stand in the same place. Yes, that's true. And we're going to touch on this in chapter 40. And again, in, if we ever get there, in the third part of Tanya. Now we're in the first part. In the third part, there's a whole section on chuva, and he dresses that exact point where you can lift up from the kliba. But, but, but by the nature the natural order of things, the way things work is that negative energy is destined to die. So, so to answer your question, I think, and I think the Rebbe even says this in a letter, it's that cumulatively, only the good remains. So even if a generation seems to have gone against its parents, let's say, and undone some of the good things their parents did, essentially it's not undone because the good will always overpower its eternal power. So I'm glad you asked this so we, so we can, you know, we, so we, so we brought it up, and it's a very good thing. Rabbi, what's the point? No, ask it. Ask direct. What's the, what's the point of living one's life to the end if you continue to see Or does one person's life end right when he finishes his mission in life, which is to do this one specific <laughs> You know, there was, a, there, was a great, there was a great chassid. Some of you might have heard of him, Rabbi J.J. Hecht. He passed away in 1990. He was in charge of the, the girls' uh, overnight camp, the girls' Chabad overnight camp. Very special man. He, he ran all the children's rallies with the Rebbe and uh, was a rabbi of a congregation. Uh, incredible, incredible man. But he had a part of him that uh, could get very bitter and very easily thrown off by challenges. So there was one time, he was also in charge of the Lagba Umar parades. The Rebbe would come out on Sundays and do the whole thing. 
So he was in charge of Rebbe. And one time he was coming up against something incredibly difficult to Rebbe. Even the organizers, or there was some infighting. I don't know exactly the story. But basically he was so frustrated that uh, he came into the Rebbe's office. He had an open door. He came into the Rebbe's office. He put the keys down on the desk. And he said, Rebbe, I'm done with this. Here's you go. Goodbye. So the Rebbe looked up and just started talking. The Rebbe said, when a soul finishes its job in this world, he grabbed the keys back. <laughs> I'm done. 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 He said, when the soul finishes out in the world, then you pass away. Bury you. So, I don't know the intricacies of the Kabbalah of how it works and when a soul passes away and if it finishes its whole mission. In terms of the Mashiach conversation, which is the, the conversation in the Tanya, achieving the world's ultimate goal, there we look at it and we say, that's the end. So, to the degree you can contribute, to bringing the world to its ultimate perfection, you got to keep going. If you came up against one mitzvah today and that wasn't it, tomorrow there's another opportunity, maybe that's the one. You have to, what's called in the Talmud, chatof ve'achol, chatof grab and eat, grab and drink. In other words, whatever comes your way in terms of Judaism, you got to do it. So that's, that's what I would say in this question. And with this, the conversation on action is paramount concludes. So basically over chapters 35, 36, and 37, the Alter Rebbe has developed this idea of the importance of physical action because that's God's Judaism. It brings God down into the world, first into yourself, then into the parts of the world that are related to yourself, and then in the historical term, uh, uh, connotation of you're finishing a job that's been going on for millennia. But then in the last two pages of the chapter, there's a flip side conversation. And I'm not going to make this too long because we're already going very long. But this is, this is the chapter. We do a chapter a week, okay? It's the longest chapter. This is it. One of the many great things that can be said of the Jewish people is the degree to which we have sacrificed to learn Torah even under the harshest conditions, life-threatening conditions. We've made sure to stick to the study. Some of you may know the famous story of Hillel, who was so poor, barely eked out a living, and in his town, the study hall had a very interesting security guard. Besides for doing his job, he also charged the fee. Didn't ask anybody. He charged it. If you wanted to go into the, into the study hall, you had to pay a coin. And the Hillel was so poor that it was half of his earnings. Every day, whatever he earned, he would divide in half. Half he would pay to the security guard to go and study Torah, and the other half he'd bring home to his wife. And uh, one time, he didn't have the money. That day was not a good business day. He didn't have the coin to get into the study hall, but he wanted to come learn. So he came to the... He came to the Bet Midrash, and there's the guard, and he says, let me in, I want to learn Torah. He says, no money, no entry. He says, please, I'll pay you tomorrow, I'll owe you the money. He says, no, 
the hill was determined and so he climbed up on the roof and there was a skylight and he could listen from the roof to what they were studying and he got so engrossed that he didn't realize it began to snow and before long he was covered in snow now down in the study hall skylight was a source of light during the day and all of a sudden it's becoming dark so they look up what's going on what's blocking our skylight they send somebody to check on the roof and lo and behold there's a man they take him down and it was Hillel and the security guard was so embarrassed of course but he said I didn't realize he wanted to learn Torah so much and from then on he was allowed in free every day Hillel the Great the Talmud says that because of Hillel no poor man can say I can't learn Torah Hillel was the poorest of the poor and yet he learned Torah and became such a great sage another story about Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. Horkinus was a great rich man in Israel. He loved to support yeshivas. But he didn't want his kids to be uh, too, too, too orthodox. Too Jewish. Too Jewish. We'll support the guys, but you don't have to become the Chabadniks, okay? <laughs> and, uh, but I guess what happens is when you support Torah enough, it rubs off on your kids. And one of the kids wanted to learn. Eliezer was his name. And he told his father, I want to be a Torah scholar. His father said, no, 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 that's not what we do. We give them the money. You go into business. They come and fundraise. But we don't go to the yeshiva. So he said, uh, basically, it was a whole thing. He really wanted to go. And he was out one day plowing in the field. And his plow broke. So he was stuck. And... uh, According to one version of the Midrash, he got a heavenly voice was revealed to him and said, this is the opportunity to go. Anyway, he, he escaped. While he was out there in the field, he escaped to Yeshiva. He went to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's Yeshiva. And uh, his father was searching for him, couldn't find him, didn't know where he was. Anyway, he came with nothing to the Yeshiva. And he was a complete beginner. He was older, he was already 40. And these were young kids studying. And he didn't know how to read Aleph Beis, and they taught him slowly but surely. But nobody asked any questions about you know, how he's taking care of himself. And one day, one of the students went over to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and said, you know, Eliezer's breath stinks. But not because of uh, bad breath. It's like, like starvation uh, smell. So we got to check what he has. They asked Eliezer, do you have uh, food? He said, yeah, I have food. You could even see in my room there's a sack where I keep my food. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai told the student, go check what's in the sack. And it was dirt. He was eating dirt. And uh, basically, it was discovered that you know, he was really su- sacrificing himself, and, and they took him in. Rabbi Chanan gave him a person to take care of him, would feed him, and he became this great, great sage. And one day, Horkinus, his father, came to visit Jerusalem to see what he's paying money for. You know, he's fundraising all, he's funding all these yeshivas, let me see what they produce. So Rabbi Chanan heard he's coming, so he made a huge feast. Didn't tell him who his son was. Made a huge feast, he brought him in. And he said, I, wanna, I want one of the students to present a discourse in Torah. And his son stood up and started speaking pearls, just a magnificent class. And even a, even a, a lay leader could appreciate when it's a good class. And he said, wow, he was so touched, he was so moved. He says, you know, what's this boy's name? Rabbi said, his name is Eliezer, son of Horkinus. And he basically realized that it's his own son, and he forgave him, and uh, a whole thing. But this is it. Torah, Torah was, was, was so important to the Jewish people. And when we come off the discussion here in chapter 37, it almost seems like Torah study is relegated to the back seat. Because the action is the main thing. The physical is the main thing. Torah is an academic study, intellectual pursuit that gets involved the mind. You know, the mind is the higher part of ourselves. 
and the Alter Rebbe and Tanya is so adamant about Torah study all the time it keeps on coming up Talmud Torah can I get Kulam he quotes the Mishnah nothing can, nothing can compare with Torah so the Alter Rebbe in the middle of chapter 37 says you know I'm talking all about mitzvahs I, I just don't want you to think that Torah is out you know out of the equation and we have to address the greatness of Torah study and he gives, gives three points that put Torah ahead of mitzvahs. In a way, mitzvahs are ahead of Torah. But in a way, Torah is ahead of mitzvahs. And we always keep these points in mind so we never lose track of the balance. As Jews, we're focused on a world mission. We are creating God's home. But an integral part of that is also Torah study. And he says three things. Firstly, mitzvahs, for all that they're good for, they don't inherently change you. You do them with your hands, with your foot, with your nose. They don't change the character of your limbs. We do talk about sometimes how by osmosis doing more mitzvahs can have an effect on your character. But essentially, fundamentally speaking, they don't create paradigm shifts. Torah can do that. You study Torah enough. You ingest God's infinite wisdom. You will fundamentally be reshaped in your approach to the world, in your perspective on things, and the way you approach everything. So what the Torah lacks, let's say, what the Torah lacks in lower realmness, right, and then it can't reach the low, it makes up for in the change that it effectuates in you. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I'll use it you know, by illustration of a, a verse that we're all, fa- all familiar with. Shlomo HaMelech says, Kiner mitzvah Torah or. A mitzvah is a candle and a Torah is light. Candle and light are both light. What's the difference between a candle and light? So Hasidus teaches a candle is limited. It's one candle. Both in quantity. First, it can only light up a certain space. And uh, it could be extinguished. It doesn't spread very far. It's limited to where it is. Daylight, on the other hand, is all-encompassing. You don't say, uh, if you lit enough candles, you can create daylight. If you lit enough candles, you can light up in enough space. Daylight is, an, is a sort of surround light. If you're talking about surround sound, you have a surround light. It, it creates a, an essential luminescence. So, what that means spiritually is mitzvahs are like candles. Each mitzvah you do, it's one deed. You lit up one part of yourself. You affected one part of your body. You brought God into one more space in the world. Torah attaches you to its totality whatever you learn. You can learn one section of Torah, Tanya chapter 37, and we're touching the infinity inherent in all of the Torah. It's only capable of Torah learning. We're going to get more involved in this in later chapters, but the author talks about that's why there's no wrong way to learn Torah. You know, a guy comes to you and says, I'm an atheist. I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to do mitzvahs. I want to just study Torah. And he studies Torah. He's connected, as connected as we are. When it comes to mitzvahs, it doesn't work that way. If you do, if you do it wrong, there's many wrong ways. But you can't learn Torah wrong. Why? Because you're tuning in to an infinity that's beyond everything. And thirdly, kind of connected, but a, a, different, uh, a different point. Mitzvahs remain within the physical arena. They were given to be physical and they remain physical. Even if they have symbolism and deep meaning, 
but the act, what makes a mitzvah a mitzvah, always remains physical. When it comes to the Torah, however, when we study a physical topic, we believe that that's just a piece of clothing to a deeper divine phenomenon. Months ago, in chapter 4, we used the illustration. The Alter Rebbe said, hugging a king, if he's without clothes, or with one layer of clothing, or with ten layers of clothing, doesn't matter what he's wearing, you're hugging the king. It's kind of weird if he doesn't have any clothes on. <laughs> True. <laughs> but the idea being, you're, when, we, when you learn Torah, you're getting an intimate experience with God, even if it's being enclosed in a case of a cow goring an ox, or two people arguing over a wallet, there's so much depth that even if you're not aware of, you're engaged with. He says very interestingly, the word for scripture in Hebrew is mikra. The root word of mikra is kriah, calling. Every time you learn Torah, you're calling out to Hashem and you're calling Him down. You're calling Him into your reality. The last line of the chapter, he says, that's why any person who thinks into it will be taken over with a reverence when he learns Torah. A sanctity. You know, we don't learn Torah with our feet up on a chair. We learn Torah with respect. Why? Because Torah is the, engage, is the experience of touching the divine. So the Alter Rebbe says, with all the fuss about action, it's important we don't lose sight of the Torah. And by the way, just in case you were worried, Torah also has an element of action. Because when you learn Torah, you move your lips. And moving your lips is an action. So essentially everything has an action part to it. And this concludes chapter 37. And it also concludes the second third of the Tanya. Because from chapter 38, next week, we're going to move on to a whole different subject. Subject of passion in serving God. Emotions. Basically all the way till the end. And, uh, and I'm thinking we should do next week, like we did in, way back, we're going to do a summary. Mm. So we covered chapters 1 to 17 one time. We're going to do from chapter 18 to chapter 37. 20 chapters in one sitting we're going to do. So we don't lose sight of, you know, of, the, of the gist of the Tanya. So next week, Anybody that has uh, something that's been you know, wanting to bring somebody in, but it's you know never felt like it was a good time, this is a great. We were gonna you know recapitulate everything we have, so that we can move forward in uh, in the journey of studying Tanya. L'chaim, l'chaim. 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 L'chaim.